Blanche Delpuget became fascinated with the 12th century as a teenager, but it took another 50 years before she was inspired to write a five-book series about the first Plantagenet King of England, King Henry II, and his superstar wife, Eleanor of Aquitaine, the richest woman in Europe at that time, and between the two of them, two of the most outstanding monarchs England has ever had. I say inspired because when she talks about writing the books, the series, she says that she sat down at her laptop and just became totally immersed in the Plantagenet world for hours on end. Welcome to the Joys of Binge Reading, the show for anyone who ever got to the end of a great book and wanted to read the next instalment. We interview successful series authors and recommend the best in mystery, suspense, historical and romance series. So you'll never be without a book you can't put down. You'll find this episode's show notes, a free ebook, and lots more information at thejoysofbingereading.com. And now, here's our show. Hi there, I'm your host Jenny Wheeler. And today in The Joys of Binge Reading, Blanche talks about how the Plantagenets are attracting new attention from historians after years of having their reputations sullied by murder in the cathedral and T.S. Eliot's slant on Beckett's murder. But before we get to Blanche, just a reminder, Binge Reading is now on Patreon. For as little as a cup of coffee a month, you can support the show and get fortnightly exclusive bonus content. Find out more on patreon.com forward slash the joys of binge reading. But now here's Blanche. Hello there, Blanche, and welcome to the show. It is wonderful to have you with us. Thank you very much, Jenny. It's really generous of you. Look, you've had a remarkable career as a journalist and novelist and in public life as the wife of former Australian Prime Minister Bob Hawke. But today we're here to talk about your latest masterpiece, the historical fiction series around the first generation of Plantagenet kings. The founding family who in various guises dominated the life of England for 300 years. Now, you've written a number of award-winning contemporary literary novels in your earlier career, but this is quite a departure in terms of being a historical work and also being more in the line of genre fiction. What drew you to this rambunctious family? (laughs) It's funny. In my late teens, I was absolutely fascinated by the 12th century and I bought a whole lot of little books about it which have now disappeared from print from a a tiny little bookshop in a lane in Sydney and that's also disappeared. All the lanes have been covered over in Sydney just about. And I had this huge, well, it, it ended up being a very big collection of stuff about the 12th century And I was, when I wanted to turn to writing again after a long break from writing fiction, I first thought, as one does when thinking of the 12th century and great characters, I first thought of Richard Richard I, Richard the Lionheart, and I did quite a bit of reading on him and then I thought, I really hate this guy, which I still do. And so then I thought, I'll look at his father. And that that was it. I started to read about Richard's father, Henry II, and I was totally hooked. And indeed, contemporary historians are now beginning to recognise 
that Richard, that Henry II was one of England's greatest kings. He was the earliest Plantagenet king and also one of its earliest kings. Of uh, Well, he united the country in a way it really hadn't been before. So there we go. Yeah, I was hooked on Henry. It's funny, isn't it, as a little aside, that Richard has got that sobriquet, the Lionheart, as if he's sort of something, a chivalrous, fantastic person. And yet certainly in your book, he doesn't come through that way at all. No, well, and he only got the uh, title Lionheart years after his death too. Oh, did he? Yes, he was never known as that while he was alive. Mm. Now, you say in the author's note to The Young Lion, which is the first book in the series and tells how the beginnings of how Henry got to the English throne, that the writing of it was preceded by what you describe as a mighty gong. For those who used to go to the movies in the 50s and 60s, there was this gong that came on when a movie was coming on. And it was kind of like you almost sounded as if it was some sort of mystical experience that led you to decide to start on this. And I wondered, how was the catalyst, what was the catalyst for that gong sounding? Well, it was really going back to my late teenage years and this original um, fascination with the 12th century and 12th century people. So that was that was the gong chiming in my head. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Look, when you went to France to do your research for this book, you mentioned that, uh, because Henry, of course, did start out as a French count and a duke, you mentioned, though, that the French had a rather different view of Henry II that came through in their literature to what the English did. And I wondered if you could just maybe tease out for us a little bit what those differences were. Yes, sure. Well, to start with, Henry was never a king of France, and but perhaps more importantly than that, he was a Norman, and the Normans were were Vikings basically. That's how Normandy was formed. The Vikings used to come down and and raid the coast of France until they sailed up the Seine and said to the current the king of France, "Give us a piece of your countryside, or we're going to take Paris." And the king wisely gave them Normandy. So the the Normans and the French have never a hundred percent loved each other. That's one thing. But the other thing is, of course, France is a republic, and England is a kingdom, and France is Catholic, and England is Anglican, and Henry is rightly, I'm afraid, in my view, blamed for the murder of Thomas Becket who is a, a revered saint among the Catholics. And every week there are busloads of French who go across the channel to go and see the spot in Canterbury Cathedral where Beckett was murdered. So that's really, there's a, there's a prejudice among French historians towards Henry. Gosh, it's interesting that that pilgrimage to Canterbury should still be going on today, isn't it? Yes, well, he's, he's an important saint. Trinity Sunday, which we've, uh, which has been celebrated quite recently, was the date that <laughs> he made up himself. It was the date he was elevated to be head of, head of Canterbury Cathedral, and he declared it Trinity Sunday, and it's observed ever since by Catholics and some high Anglicans, actually. Yeah, yeah. It's fascinating when you see the picture that you present of Beckett in this book that 
probably if he hadn't have died the way that he did, he would never have become the saint like he has, would he? Oh, never, never. Indeed, his reputation was in his lifetime was not good. He'd been a financier when he was a young man before he went, went into the church. He never became a priest. He was known as Oily Tom. He was very, very good at finance and at raising money. And he became Henry's chancellor and was a, an outstanding chancellor. He could get blood out of a stone and did for the king. But then he saw that a better way of advancement, because he didn't come from an, an aristocratic family, he came from a fairly commonplace family. He saw the way of advancement was through the church and he vigorously climbed that ladder, which was there for smart young men to climb. And he was certainly very smart, sharp as a whip. Yes. We know that the founding pair of the Plantagenets were Henry II and his wife, Eleanor of Aquitaine, and they were both highly gifted monarchs in their own right, I think it would be fair to say. And also their children certainly did not carry on that that political savvy that their parents had. And you can't help thinking if they, if Henry and Eleanor had been better parents, would the whole course of English history be different from what it is now? Well, you might can't help think that right now, but let me tell you that back then monarchs did not raise their own children. In fact, very few of the aristocracy ever did raise their own children in England at the, or in France for that matter. It was normal when a child was about between three and six to be sent to another family to be raised. So it wasn't that they weren't bad parents. Parenting just wasn't done that way then. But initially they had a wet nurse and then they would be sent to somebody's household. In the case of Henry and Eleanor, they sent their eldest son to... Beckett to raise as his his godchild. So that's, yeah, it's not an argument against them as parents. That's great. That's good to know because none of the sons really shaped up as being a suitable successor to the parents, did they? Well, in a, in a way, <clears throat> although I hate him terribly, Richard, Richard I, Richard the Lionheart, did. He was an extraordinarily brave man but he was foolhardy he was he also happened to be six foot four or five we know from his armor and so he he was very warlike very aggressive and he had the great advantage of very long arms which if you're fighting with the sword is fantastic yeah but he he only spent about a few months of his whole reign actually in England didn't he yes just six months in England and never bothered to learn English yeah <laughs> I guess he had some very able administrators there. He did, and that was thanks to his father, who had really established the art, who created the art of government, of, of being able to rule a huge amount of land of, um, on, and on both sides of the sea on, in England and then in France without physically being present himself, but having very good administrators and having established a civil service that would rule in, in the king's, in the absence of the physical presence of the king. And that was unique well, in Europe. Henry yes. uniquely invented that, yeah. Yes, yeah. Look, the books have just come alive. There's the most fantastic amount of what seems to me to be 
true detail in them. And I wonder how you married up your research and the fact and fiction side of things, which is the challenge for every historical writer. How did you find that balance? Well, it's funny, but I used to find when I'd go in and sit down to write, I'd leave home and I had this ugly little apartment where I wrote, I'd sit down and it was as if I could see it all, honestly. I'd, I'd done a lot of research So I had a great deal of stuff in my head, but it was the characters just absolutely came alive for me and, as it were, talked to me and told me what was happening and showed me what was happening. Remarkable. There were two in particular that really stuck out for me in terms of curiosity about the, the balance between the fact and fiction. The first was the young minstrel that origin that eventually became Sir Richard, the one that Henry called the lout, who became his kind of fixer for all sorts of nasty problems. I think he was totally fictional, was he, or was he based on anything real? Look, he was totally fictional, but he was the sort of person, uh, a courtier, whom every king needed. So, But he was a spy. He was uh, Henry's chief of espionage and of dirty tricks. So, of course, his name is such a name of such a person is not going to appear in the historical records. Yeah. So yeah. He, he was he was fictional, but it was based on what one knows about the operation and exercise of power. Yes. The other one was Hamlin, the Earl of Surrey. He was a real character, but I think you gave him probably a huge, amazing backstory that was not there in the records. Would that be right? That's true. Yes, mm. that's true. I felt a very deep connection with Hamlin. I could, I could absolutely see him the whole time. Yes, he. They, they were both. I mean, Richard, you couldn't help be part, partly, you know, absolutely repulsed by him, but he nevertheless had his charms. But yes, Hamlin was fantastic, really, as a character. Now the spiritual char- the spiritual aspect for all of those key characters was quite strong. I'm thinking of Henry and Hamelin and the Scotsman Douglas. They all had experiences where a mystical wisdom was imparted to them at key moments when they had to make critical decisions. And I read an interesting thing that you say that mysticism was very much part of life in this time in a way that it isn't in our time that we tend to maybe dismiss it a little bit. Talk to us a little bit about that. Did that come through in the records as well? Well, look, in the the histories that I read, it doesn't accept every now and again there'd be an implication of something. And Eleanor, there was certainly uh, with Eleanor, she had mystical a particular mystical experience when her eldest child was killed. But it... The thing to remember is we mustn't judge the past by contemporary standards. The past really is a different country and the church and mysticism was integral to their lives and it's integral to, the, to these books, to these stories. They lived, it was, it was real to them. Well, for example, what do you call it, relics of saints. Now, they were taken absolutely seriously and, indeed, they did a lot of the time 
cure illnesses and uh, arrange marriages and do all sorts of things that they that people prayed to them to do. But you must remember that placebos, mm. they, right now in the 21st century, a placebo will have 30% chance of success, although it's made of nothing, in curing an illness. So I see that those, and we... <laughs> We seem to have a mystical We've got a mystical belief in science and placebos um, somehow. So really that's that's the point I'm making there. Yes. And you've remarked that you have quite a strong spiritual practice yourself. And I wondered if you would be comfortable telling us a little bit more about that aspect of your life. Yes, yeah, sure. I, I went to live in Java when I was young, I was only 22, which was thousands of years ago, of course, and it, if there was one adjective that you would apply to the Javanese back then, it was that they were mystical. And so I had my first experience, adult experience of mysticism when I was 22 when I spent a lot of time with Javanese mystics. And that led me when I was 28 to start meditating. And since then, I have med- I've meditated on and off for up until now, another thousand years. So I guess I'm very uh, familiar in, with, with mystical things. So my own spiritual experience comes through, I've been, I, I would, call myself a Christian but I don't go to any church but I'm still an absolute Christian and I when I meditate it is through what I would call the Christ what other yeah. other yeah. people and it's not the sort of Christ that in the actually described in the Bible it's an energy so yeah yeah <laughs> I suppose I, I've just confused you more. No, I thought you were going to say it's not the Christ they talk about in the Bible about in the US. <laughs> well, that too, <laughs> absolutely. <laughs> Look, you had a lot happening in your private life over this period that you've been writing these five books. I think probably some of that time Bob's health was declining and you were helping him through his final years. And also then towards the end you had the personal challenge of breast cancer, possibly when you were finishing the last book, The Cubs Roar. And I wondered if these books had become some sort of an escape for you or were they particularly hard to finish under those circumstances? Look, they weren't hard to finish because, as you would know and any fiction writer knows, it's not that you have to... People say, where do you get the discipline for writing? You don't need the discipline you're so motivated to do it it's such a pleasure it's to go into another world so yes indeed I used to in Bob's final years I used to go off to work very happily to not to escape from him in any way because we adored each other so much but he had a, a carer and he, or he was usually still asleep when I went to work and then I'd, I'd have five wonderful hours back in the 12th century and then I'd get in my car and drive into the 21st and yes <laughs> yeah that's how it worked <laughs> yes yes 
It's turning away from talking about the specific books to your wider career. Henry and Eleanor obviously were preoccupied by this idea of legacy, building a monarchy, but who succeeded them and how they were going to be viewed was obviously important to them. I wondered how important a sense of legacy was to you and what hopes you had to leave what sort of legacy, if, if it does mean something to you. Look, I think I've always wanted to share the knowledge such as it is that I have with other people because I went I was one of the early waves of Australians who went to Asia and I was really keen my first books were my first novels were set in Asia and part of my first biography was set in Asia too so in Indonesia and so it's been that act of of sharing that is what I would like to leave as think of as a legacy. And these books, because they seem to come to me almost mystically, almost challenge as a channel, I'd hope people find them a, in them a legacy too of what life in the twelfth century was. Do you think the Plantagenets have become more interesting to 20, 20th, 21st century people? Well, as I said, contemporary historians are, are now reassessing he- Henry II, who was out of favour for a hell of a long time um, because of the murder of Beckett and, I might say, because of the play by Owen. Oh, his name's gone out of my head. Um, you know, The Lion in Winter, was it? No, no, Murder in the Cathedral. Oh, and the Lion yeah. in Winter was a terrific movie. That was with Peter O'Toole and, and oh, it was the last film... Made was it Catherine Hepburn? Of Catherine Hepburn, exactly. Yeah. That was marvellous. It wasn't a good, it wasn't an accurate portrait of Henry at all by, I'm sure it was O'Toole who played him. But he, yeah, he was, I think it was, yeah. Yeah, he wasn't, a, he wasn't anything like Henry. But, and I've now forgotten what. Was it T.S. Eliot who did? It was, it was T.S. Eliot who did Murder in the Cathedral, which, of course, poured a great deal of ordure over <clears throat> Henry II, but now he's being looked at again more seriously and it, it, what he achieved was truly astonishing. Yeah, yeah. Look, a perennial question that I like to ask everyone, is there one thing, when you're looking at your own writing career, sing, singling out your writing career, is there one thing you've done that you think has been the secret to your success? <laughs> yes, it's very prosaic. I have been well financially supported, <clears throat> initially by my first husband and then by the Liter- Australian Literature Board and then by my second husband. And because without money, it's very, very hard to write or you've, you've got to have a, a full-time job or more or less full-time job and write in the margins of your time. But I was fortunate in having two men and and a government willing to support my writing. Look, it's wonderful that you're so refreshingly honest about that because, you know, I've been doing these podcasts now. We've we've nearly done 200. And if the one thing I've picked up over that time, although we never really talk directly about money, is how many of these authors who are writing terrific books and some of them, are you know, get onto the New York Times bestseller list, but 
most of them are not really making a decent living out of it. And I saw a stat the other day that 90%, 98% of the fiction books published by trad publishers sell less than 5,000 copies. Now, you can't make a living on that, can you? No, you cannot. So mm. you need money from elsewhere. And, so, for example, Australia's best-known writer, because he won the Nobel Prize, Patrick White, had a huge private income. He was a member of the squatocracy, as we call the rich graziers here. And the literature board, I don't know how it is in New Zealand, but the literature board has been enormously important to us, to Australian writers for allowing them to keep going. Yeah, that's great. Uh, and otherwise they'd just give up. Because you get too tired. Writing, writing takes an enormous amount of energy psychic energy and if you've if you've worked full time or you've got you're looking after kids if you're a woman um or a man for that matter these days and trying to write you just it's, it's just too exhausting and you're taking a very long while to do it yes yes look thinking of yourself that 20 year old in asia and and considering life today has it unfolded the way that you expected? Have you got unfinished business still? Yes, I have. I want to, I, I've travelled an enormous amount and I've lived in a number of countries, but I really want to travel some more, which is now impossible, at <laughs> is for a few years. But I'd like to see a lot more of Australia, which is possible and the impossible at the moment. Right at the moment, South Australia's closed its borders to people from certain parts of Sydney, including where I live in Sydney. But I think that I hope as we get more vaccinated, that will ease off and more travel will be there. I wouldn't mind falling in love again. Wonderful, Blanche. Look, that's gorgeous. Look, turning to Blanche as reader, we always like to do this because this is a podcast where we try and suggest to people books they're going to love, books they're not wanting to put down. What are you reading at the moment? And have you ever in the past or now been a binge reader? Look, I'll go to the, the second part first. There is only, uh, well, in the distant past, I binge read lots of authors when I was learning to write. You uh, you have to read a lot to be able to write. And V.S. Naipaul, I suppose, I, I read every single thing that he wrote until I got to hating. I, more recently I, I read everything by Michelle Huelbeck, who is a, 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 seems to be an absolutely awful man, so is Naipaul as far as I can see. But... Great, great writers, and I've just finished Welbeck's latest novel called Serotonin. But the the uh, author I uh, I do like binge reading, who's not so literary as those two guys, is Robert Harris, who I think's fantastic. His trilogy on Cicero is magnificent. Well, it's it's yeah, set Cicero is the main character, but it goes through until Julius Caesar is. Um, is who he is and has Cicero murdered. But it's a really marvellous book. I will read anything that Robert Harris writes. Fantastic. And what are you currently reading? I'm currently reading two books. One of them is actually by a friend of mine who's a cinephile, if if I can say that, called Al Clark. He made a famous movie. He was producer of a famous movie called Priscilla, Queen of the Desert. Oh, yes. Yes. He's written, this is his first part of his memoir called 
Time Flies and it's him growing up in Spain. I've only just started that. And the other book that I'm very much enjoying at the moment is in English, let me hang on, I know it in French, um, A Fire of Joy, which is 80 poems to be, and it, the, this is what it says on the title, 80 poems, oh, no, about 80 poems to be got by half, by heart and enjoyed or something, and they're chosen by the Australian who recently died, brilliant, brilliant polymath called um, Clive James. Oh, yes. I'm just reading those. So every night I'm reading some poetry and Clive James's comment on that poetry, and at the same time I'm reading Al Clark's memoir. Wonderful. Are you tempted to memorise any of those poems? I'm trying. <laughs> it's damn difficult unless it's something that you learned at school like Ozymandias <laughs> look we're coming to the end of our time together so circling around looking back down the tunnel of time if you were doing it all over again and we're now still referring to your writing career what would you change if anything I would have read a lot more than I did and I before I started writing, and I would have read a lot more poetry. Interesting. Mm. I heard a podcast just recently, Marianne Faithful reading romantic poets. I must admit I haven't had a chance to listen to her do it, but she had a whole section on this podcast that I listened to where she's reading romantic poets. So it seems to be a thing, this poetry thing. Well, maybe I was unaware of that myself. (laughs) Yeah. Look, what is next for Blanche the writer? Have you got any ongoing projects at the moment? Are you taking a breather after this um, magnificent work? Oh, thank you for calling it, so describing it. I am taking a breather because I had breast cancer last year. I decided to take, and I was being treated for most of the year, I've decided to take all of this year off and my brain is absolutely vacant as so I I'm not thinking of writing anything no are you enjoying that time yes I am because as you'd be aware a writer's life is you're locked up by yourself staring at a these days at a screen all day for the best part of the day and social life is very very restricted and I'm having great fun going to lunch and and shopping and catching up with all my old friends from teenage years and early 20s. So I'm really loving it. That's fantastic, but it really is. So do you do you entertain chatting with your readers online? Do you do any sort of engagement or are you doing some promotional work for these this latest quadrilogy or however you whatever you call five books? How can people find you if they want to? Look, I don't do chatting online. I've when um social media first entered the universe, I had a good look at it and I thought that is not for me. I am going nowhere near it. So all I do is emails and people can email me and I'll email them back or they can write to me and I'll write back. But I I don't do chatting online. I don't do blogs or any of that sort of thing. It just, it, it seriously doesn't appeal to me. The, the thing is, Jenny, I was in the public eye a great deal. I was also for years trolled 
before social media. And so it absolutely put me off. I can totally understand that, actually. Yeah. That's lovely. That's wonderful. Well, look, thank you so much for being with us today. I really salute you with that, that um, the five-book series. It's fantastic. Thank you. Thank you, Jenny. I'm most grateful. Thanks for listening to the Joys of Binge Reading podcast. You can find all the details and links for this episode at www.thejoysofbingereading.com. We'd love to hear your comments and suggestions for who you'd like us to interview next. And if you enjoyed the show, take a moment to subscribe on iTunes or a similar provider so you won't miss out on future guests. Thanks for joining us and happy reading. The Joys of Binge Reading podcast is put together with fantastic technical help from Dan Cotton and Abe Raffles. Dan is an experienced sound and video engineer who's ready and available to help you with your next project. Seek him out at dcaudioservices at gmail.com. That's D for Daniel, C for Charlie, audioservices at gmail.com. Or check our show notes. He's fast, he takes pride in getting it right, and he's great to work with. Our voiceovers are done by Abe Raffles, another gem of sound and screen. Abe has 20 years of experience on both sides of the camera slash microphone. As a cameraman director and also as a voice artist and TV presenter. I think you'd agree that his voice is both light-hearted and warm. He is super easy to work with no matter what the job. You'll find him at Abe, A-B-E, at pointandshoot.co.nz. As I say, the full details in the show notes on the website. That's it for now. Thanks for listening. Hopefully see you next week. Bye.